Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Athens. Glad you're with us. Let's do this. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Micah, chapter 1. In Micah, chapter 1. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, not a problem. Just slip up your hand and we will, our volunteers will get one to you. And when you get that Bible, open it to the prophet Micah, chapter 1. I want to uh, give you my objective from the outset this morning in the scriptures. There's something particular about God that I want us to understand today. When you search the scriptures and you survey history and how God has operated in the world, there is something, one thing in particular this morning that very much sticks out. It's a single truth about God that I believe dominates the pages of Scripture. And so I want to look into that this morning. To get there, though, we first need to understand a few things about this prophetic book, Micah, and how it's set up. And the best way to understand how it's set up is to understand that it has three distinct sections. I want to show those to you now. Three different sections. The first one is chapters 1 and 2, which we, for the most part, covered. We'll cover the last two verses in chapter 2 today. That's the first section. The second is chapters 3 through 5, and the third is chapters 6 through 7. Now, here's how you know that you're in a new section. Each section starts the same way, and they start with the word hear. Hear. Listen. Listen up. Hear what I have to say. Let me take you through these. Chapter 1, verse 2. First section begins, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. That's the first one. Flip over to chapter 3. Verse 1, second section. What does it read? And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And then the last section it's chapter 6 and 7, so flip over to chapter 6, and what do you find? The same word, hear what the Lord says. So three sections. Now within each section, you're going to find this back and forth motion between two things. It's in each one of these, and it's this back and forth motion between these two things, judgment and promise. There's warnings of judgment. That's a lot of what the book of Micah is, predicated on what was happening in the state of Israel. Lots of warnings. We've already looked at some of those in the first two chapters. But there's also promises that are made, promises of salvation, of deliverance, of grace, of mercy. So it's back and forth everywhere you go in this book. Judgment, promise, judgment, promise. Here's how the judgment works. God warns of his coming judgment upon this nation. He gives them time and grace to repent, to change their ways. And if they do not, then he fulfills the warning that he's given. Okay, that's the biblical pattern. You see this not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. You see it not only with Yahweh, but with Jesus. You see it not only with the nation of Israel, but also with the church. That pattern, warnings of judgment... Time and grace to repent is what God wants. If they do, then they're reconciled back to Yahweh. If they don't, then God fulfills his judgment and puts a stop to the patterns of injustice in the community. 
You see this pattern, though, not just with the Old Testament, but with the New, how Jesus talks to the churches. And the book of Revelation is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus talks to churches like us. And you see him use the exact same biblical pattern that you find in the Old Testament. So I want to show it to you. Flip there. Let's flip over to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Pick up in chapter 2. And I want you to keep an eye out for this pattern. This is Jesus talking to different church communities. First, he's talking to the church that's in Ephesus. This is all modern-day Turkey. And then we'll go from there. So pick up in chapter 2, verse 5. This is the words of Jesus to this church. He says, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So that's the, the warning, the call to repentance. And he says this, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Lampstand represented their church. What history tells us is they did not repent. And so God did remove their lampstand. If you were to go to modern-day Turkey in the city of Ephesus, you would not find a thriving church. Go over to verse 16. This is a different church. Pergamum. Again, modern-day Turkey. Look at what Jesus says, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Lastly, I want to show you chapter 3, verse 3. He's talking to the church in Sardis. Jesus says to them, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. And repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at, at what hour I will come against you. So you see this pattern, not only in the Old, but in the New, not only with Yahweh of the Old Testament, but with Jesus of the New Testament. And I believe that you'd be on solid ground to assume that in the same way Jesus speaks and relates to the situation then is the exact same way that he speaks and relates to our particular situations now as a community. And this is, of course, what you see being played out in Micah. If we could bring that slide to the screen, that list of the biblical pattern. What you see is, in the first part, what God does is he announces warnings of judgment. The second part, he gives time and grace to repent. Okay, the third, either... if. The community does repent. God relents and reconciles them to himself. And if not, then God fulfills his judgment. That's what you see from cover to cover of Scripture. What's important to understand, though, is that it's totally based upon our response. God graciously puts it in our hands. When God highlights areas of community sin or injustice and calls us to change, he puts it in our hands. Gives us time and grace to make those changes. This is really important to understand because otherwise it makes God look out to be a God of judgment. And that's all God wants to do in our world. And it's not. You see in Jeremiah 18, God's caveat to all warnings of judgment. It reads this. If at any time I... God speaking, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. So that's judgment. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. 
It's exactly what God has done in real history. It's precisely how he's operated in the world, which should cause us to really pay attention, right? This is how God has operated, actually how God moves and works in our midst. It should cause us to pause and pay attention to how God operates. I believe so much of modern Christian spirituality is based on assumption. Now, you might not agree, but I believe so much of it. If you read the books, if you listen to the sermons, if you read the articles, hear the podcast, I think so much of it is assuming how God acts, assuming how God thinks. But today what we're looking at is actual evidence, not assumption of who God is and how God acts. And so what do we find historically in the book of Micah? Well, you find this, two examples. In the year 722 B.C., it's important to note that, real history. During the time of Micah, one nation did not repent. That was the northern kingdom, Israel. They did not repent. And so God had the Assyrians invade and exile them in judgment, put a stop to the oppression that was happening. You read about this in 2 Kings 17. It should be on the screen. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. That was the capital. And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halal. So that's the first example. That nation did not repent. This is what took place. The other nation did, Judah, in the south. They did repent, and so God does what God does in Scripture. He relents of his judgment, and he pulled back the Assyrian army in the year 701 B.C. It's recorded in Scripture. 2 Kings 19 should be on the screen. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold... These were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. So what we have here is two samples of how God really operated in the world. Not assumption, not theory, actually what he did. I think it's important to note this. I think it's important to realize and get a clear idea of what brought God to judgment on that northern kingdom in Israel. You have to understand how bad things really got there to have the context as to why God allowed this to happen. For that, you see this in 2 Kings chapter 17. Do we have that slide? There it is. Take a look at what was happening in their society. They despised his statutes, it says, and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. So he gave them that warning and time and grace. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And then here's where you really see the climax of their injustice. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings 
and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That's very important to understand. That God didn't flippantly bring about judgment and an end to the oppression and injustice that was happening in the society. God gave them time, warnings, as it says, and you get to see a really clear picture of how bad and dark and evil things had turned in that nation. That when families are sacrificing their own children to false gods, God puts a stop to them. Real history. What really happened. I want to stop here. And I want to say that these are very important realities to understand. How God operates in the world. What the Bible calls his ways. That when necessary, God has and God will bring judgment. That's clear. But, it's just as important, or more important, to understand this bigger truth of Scripture. This bigger truth about God. And if you're anything today, I want you to hear this single truth. God rather save than judge. God rather show mercy than wrath. God rather forgive than punish. God rather reconcile than condemn. God rather issue promises of salvation than warnings of judgment. That is who the living God is in scripture and in history. First Timothy 2 reads this. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 says this about God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Much less, the entire story of Scripture is one where the living God pursues humanity over and over and over again, even when humanity doesn't want him to, and pursues them to forgive them and to redeem them and to restore them to himself. God rather save than judge. That's the entire story of Scripture. We're in the prophet Micah. We're looking at different sides of God and what he's done in history. And a lot of what we've looked at in the first two chapters are God's warnings of judgment and the fact that God did bring judgment when there wasn't repentance and an end to the oppression. And that's important to look at. That's important to understand. But we cannot miss this bigger truth in the midst of looking at that. You see this very thing play out in Micah. There's those three sections we talked about. Go ahead and flip back there. There's those three sections, and in those three sections, there's that back and forth motion of judgment and promise. As we go into this book, what you're going to find out is that God warns the southern kingdom of Judah of being taken captive by Babylon in the decades to come. They repented and they weren't invaded by the Assyrian army like the northern was. But God warns in this book 
years ahead of time that if they don't repent in the future, there was this Babylonian empire coming up that would do the same if they did not repent and they returned back to those ways. And so spoiler alert, they did not repent and God does have the Babylonian army invade in the year 586 BC. So that's 164 years before this occurs. He prophesies through the mouth of Micah warnings, but also promises of eventual deliverance and salvation from the Babylonian army. I want to show those to you. I want to show you these promises in Scripture. So pick up in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is the first promise you see. They're, they're littered throughout these different sections. Verse 12 is after two chapters of talking about judgment. Out of nowhere it says this. And this is Micah speaking on behalf of God. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So right here, God is promising to gather his people and break them out of their captivity in Babylon, which he did. That's what's important this morning. He did this. In the year 537 B.C., God broke the people. He fulfilled this promise, verses 12 and 13. He broke them out of their captivity in Babylon. What does it say? That they break through the gate. The king passes on before them, verse 13, and the Lord is at their head, leading them out. He did this in 537 B.C. He fulfilled his promise. Flip over to chapter 4. Again, speaking in Babylon, 164 years in the future from when Micah is saying these things. Micah chapter 4. You see another promise, verse 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. You see clearly who's behind the exile. Verse 7, the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And then flip over to just verse 10. It says this, Rife and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So God's promising 164 years before it happened that he was going to bring his people home, which he did. In the year 457 B.C., history tells us that God completed leading all of the exiled families back to Jerusalem. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Here, this next thing I'm going to show you, another promise. Micah speaks this out 700 years before it happens. So, pause there. If there's anyone in the room that can tell me 700 years from now, from 2022... What life will be like, much less an event that will happen, I'd be pretty astounded. 
700 years in the future. And if you flip to chapter 5, verse 2, you see the promise. It reads this, But you, O Bethlehem, O Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Who are we talking about here? Mary and Jesus. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. God promises to send the people a shepherd. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. God did this in the year 4 BC. He sent his son to lead all people back home to God. Last promise I want to show you. It's the very end of the book of Micah. This is how it ends. And it's very important to understand. Verse 18. Who is, like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God is promising here 700 years in advance to redeem all people from their sins, which he did. In the year 30 AD, you find Jesus dying on a cross for the forgiveness of the world's sins. Let's pause there. You're just taking in a lot of history. And here are the truths I think we can take away from it. God might fulfill his warnings of judgment. That's totally based on us, how we respond. But God always fulfills his promises. What he says he will do, he does. God's promises are always more powerful than human evil. I'm going to say that again. What you see through Scripture and through history is this single truth. God's promises of grace and mercy and reconciliation are always more powerful than human evil and oppression. They will not stop God's will to save. They have not. And they won't. God's will always wins in history. And God's will is not to destroy, but to save. And that's exactly what God has accomplished and provided the world in Christ Jesus. The judgment has happened on him for all who believe. There is no judgment or wrath left in God. It was all placed upon him, our divine substitute, for those who believe. 
None have to come under the judgment of God. This is the time of salvation, the year of Jubilee. God has provided world salvation for all who believe. It was in the words of Jesus in John 3. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, he says, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is who God is. This is verifiable fact of history. There is no judgment left for those who believe. The Bible is also honest about those who want nothing to do with God. God allows them to have nothing to do with him. If they want to be disconnected from the source of life, God lets them choose their own way and they will perish, as Jesus says, disconnected from the source of life. And the judgment that fell on Jesus will fall on them if they choose that they don't want to receive his grace. And so I want to end with the words of Paul. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul saw clearly from his ministry that the gospel had this innate power that when it was shared, when it was heard, when it was received, it had this innate power to save those who believe. And all of this is wrapped up in this single truth of who God is, that God rather save than judge. And so as we look ahead this next semester, and as we wrestle with this difficult prophetic book of Micah, I think it's incredibly important to keep in mind that as we proclaim, as we share and embody the witness of the gospel, God's heart is not judgment. God will judge when necessary, but his heart is to save and to reconcile and to bring people back to his love and his life. And so I want to invite Caleb and the team back up. As you came in, you should receive the communion elements. You can go and grab those now. And before we take communion, I want to give you a moment just to meditate on what you've heard from Scripture this morning. That the elements are the very evidence, this sacrament, if you will, are the very evidence of who God is and what God is doing in the world. And the reality that God's promises always prevail for salvation for those who believe. And so, Lord, we just pause right now and we put our attention on you. And we celebrate your grace. We celebrate that you're a 
promise-keeping God, a covenant-keeping God, that the promises you made our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you fulfilled those in Jesus. And we stand today in the life of those promises. Lord, what we're doing right now by taking communion is this ancient thing that has roots all the way back in the beginning when you said, let there be light. We are the recipients of your story of the men and women that have gone before us and have participated in your will and your redemptive story and plan. And so, Lord, we... We take of your body and we take of your blood with all that in mind and heart. And we pray in your name, Jesus. And everyone said, amen.